This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Eli Finkel is a professor of psychology at Northwestern University and author of the best-selling book, The All or Nothing Marriage, a fascinating look at what makes a marriage fulfilling. When he set out to write this book, he thought it was going to be a pessimistic take on marriage, since we are asking more and more of our partnerships, but not investing any more time in them, and then invariably winding up unhappy and dissatisfied. But, he says, the story ended up being much more interesting than that. Today, we talk about non-monogamy in relationships, the types of conversations he believes keep partnerships thriving, and all the ways our perceptions of what makes an ideal marriage have shifted over time. I've never been able to square this, that, that on the one hand, the decision is, is certifiable, that, that you're going to say, now that I'm 30, I know that this is the person I want to be with when I'm 80. We're going to have cancer diagnoses. We're going to have money troubles. We're going to have a toddler with a learning disability. Like, do we really think we know enough about how we function as a pair to know that we'll be able to deal with all those situations? The answer is no. Okay, let's get to my chat with Eli Finkel. As a married person, I I thought your book was fascinating in part because I sort of I picked it up thinking I'm going to get some concrete marriage tips here and you do provide those but I loved the first half or even two-thirds of the book and the way that it contextualizes partnerships and the way that they have so perceptibly changed and yet kind of unremarkably it's not something we really think about or talk about right it's sort of this it almost has a drag on us, I feel like, as we go through the evolutions of marriage. We're not aware of like the larger 
or some of us, maybe I'm not aware of always of the larger contextual framework. So it was really interesting to sort of have you take us back. So can you sort of explain the three phases or, or sort of life stages of marriage? Sure. And, and I and I share your view that, you know, we we happen to arrive at a particular cultural and historic moment. And this is just what marriage is. And we have these assumptions about what what's possible within a marriage, what's insane within a marriage, completely taboo. And it turns out that when you adopt a broader lens, there's a lot of flexibility about how people have managed this stuff over time. The book focuses mostly on marriage in the U.S., and it reviews the last 400 years uh, of marriage going back to, you know, colonial times. And the argument is, uh, and, and this largely comes from historians and sociologists, the argument is that the, the first wave of marriage, which, you know, from the 1600s till about 1850 or so, really wasn't anything like what we think of today. It wasn't primarily about love. It wasn't even primarily about the emotional fulfillment of the individual spouses. Life was far too fragile for that. People died in infancy, they died in childbirth, they died of disease, they died of hunger. And so you might have thought like, Dave's a good guy, but I don't really want to marry him because I don't feel it in my fingertips. And they just would have laughed at you. So this was like the, the pragmatic era where life was in a very literal sense about things like food, clothing, and shelter. And then the second wave, starting you know with the Industrial Revolution, starting around 1850, really reaching its peak around 19 in the 1950s, is an era where love becomes dominant. Where for sure marriage is still about practical things and still a monetary relationship and those things, but increasingly people don't marry for those things, or at least don't want to say they married for those things. And so love becomes essential. And there's a particular version of it that that became prominent in America, which which some people call the breadwinner, homemaker, love-based way of approaching marriage. And, and the idea was that men and women are, at their essence, different. And men belong in, in this professional sphere, and women belong in the domestic sphere. And again, in the 1950s, they basically nailed it. They'd been trying to get this, this vision for a long time. And, and in the 1950s, large swaths of the country finally were able to live in that life where the woman stayed home and tended to the household and the, the brood, and the men went off and went to work and everybody thought this was going to be the end of marital history. And then they ended up unhappy, which brought us to the third era, which I date to about 1965, where, yes, people still care about love. They, you know, people, and I I think this is still, we're in the third era. We wouldn't marry somebody that we don't love, but love is no longer sufficient. It's no longer the be all end all. And it wouldn't be shocking to hear our, our protagonist say, you know, Dave's a good man and I love him and he's a good father, but I feel stagnant in this relationship and the passion isn't really where I need it to be. And I'm not going to live my life like that for the next 30 years. And so increasingly since 1965 or so, we, we've been in this third era, which really prizes not only love, but also self-expression, authenticity, personal growth. And so we want a marriage that does all of these deep psychological psychological things. And there are upsides and downsides to those changes. And I loved, you know, this idea that you took Maslow's hierarchy of needs and and we're all sort of pretty familiar with that concept. And then you tweaked it slightly, right? Into this idea of sort of the mountain of Mount Maslow. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that we're expecting our spouse to support us 
you call it what high altitude needs in the yeah. self-actualization and that it's very intense work and very high expectations of something that's also has to be practical, right? Like you're looking for a good practical partner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I mean, I went all in on this metaphor. I, I found it useful. So people, you know, most of your readers, I think will have or your listeners rather will have, you know, some mental vision of this triangle that has, you know, physiological and safety needs at the bottom and love and belonging needs in the middle and esteem and self-actualization needs at the top. And what's interesting about that from my perspective is I just gave you a, you know, a 400 year summary of how marriage has changed. And it is basically a bottom to top shift in Maslow's hierarchy. So it used to yeah. be that marriage really revolved around things at the bottom and then around things at the middle, like these sorts of needs, and then things at the top. And um, so that was one thing that was interesting about it. The second thing that I thought gave a lot of mileage about the, the Maslow's hier hierarchy analogy to thinking about how marriage has changed is he's quite clear that it's certainly good to be able to eat rather than starve or to be like temperature regulated rather than freezing. But that if you're talking about richness of the inner life, a profound sense of meaning and happiness, it's really the needs at the top of the hierarchy that can that can yield those sorts of outcomes. So he doesn't trivialize the importance of getting enough food, but he says if you want a, a deeply rich, meaningful life, you're really looking to fulfill the needs, you know, yes, the, the social ones, love and belonging, but especially these self-actualizing sorts of needs. And from my perspective, if you if you superimpose that idea on this change over time that we've seen in, in marriage, what that means is that there should be a level of marital fulfillment available to people today that wasn't even within reach in earlier eras precisely because people weren't even trying. Today, we're looking to the top of that hierarchy. The problem is there's a third reason that Maslow's hierarchy is relevant, not only because it tracks the historical trajectory and because it puts within reach a deeper level of fulfillment. Maslow is quite clear that self-actualization is pretty hard to do. I mean, this is just doing it as an individual. It's not like, you know, people are going to listen to this podcast and then get self-actualized and then have their dinner. You, know, <laughs> you it's never not know, Eli. Well, don't look, I mean, don't sell us short. I, I mean, Goop <laughs> listeners, I have a lot of faith in you guys. But I, I, on average, Maslow was pessimistic. So what we end up with is a situation, and, and the title of the book is The All or Nothing Marriage. We've ended up in, in an era where because our expectations really focus toward the top of that hierarchy, toward the, the summit of that mountain, if you will, that a lot of us are disappointed today with a marriage that would have been totally adequate in 1950. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, those of us who are able to stick the landing here, those of us who are able to achieve uh, a meaningful connection when we're looking up there to the top of that hierarchy can reach that summit, can reach that level of fulfillment that that earlier eras probably didn't even have the option to reach because of the, because basically they weren't even trying. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. 
Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Can I try something on with you? It's something yeah. actually that I talked about with with the Gottmans, who I know sort of come up in your book. Mm-hmm. And it's in the context of self-actualization, it feels like there's another thing that's concurrently happening too, which is this idea that we all believe, you know, we're all sort of trying to tether ourselves to this idea of of purpose and why am I here and what am I supposed to do? And and then that dovetails with a period, sort of this highly romantic and charged period of our lives when many of us meet the people that we inevitably go on to marry, where everyone's full of this sort of optimistic hope about who they're going to be, what they're going to do, and how they're going to show up in the world. And then what I've observed in my friends who have, you know, crashed their first marriages for good or for bad yep. is that, or what seems what seemed perceptible to me was that they fell in love with the potential and the idea of this mm-hmm. person based mm-hmm. on that person's own perception of their potential mm-hmm. and that they were it was this, this mutual fantasizing that is really hard to achieve even if you apply yourself and i think in these instances the men in particular were like didn't understand why it didn't just happen Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. But how do you sort of balance that, that this high, highly idealistic, supercharged time when we're trying to make our jobs into careers and we're falling in love, et cetera? Like, how do you how do you sort of map for that potential to even support each other at the high altitude level? Well, look, there's a lot in there. Let me start <laughs> by saying that in a very real sense, the decision to marry is lunacy. You know, oh, yeah. you know, you're basically getting like a couple years in your 20s and, or early 30s or whatever. And, and you're like, boy, the sex is really good. And, you know, it's fun to be out in public together. And so, so you're sort of getting a snapshot of life together that is actually pretty different from what marriage will really be like for most of us, especially if we have kids. And so it's this like blind leap of faith that we take, you know, we're we're deeply in love. We think this person brings out the best in us. We sit there at our, we stand there on our, on our wedding day and say, you're my best friend. Another thing that nobody said in 1700. And Yes, there's an immense amount of optimism and delusion and lunacy that goes into that decision. But lest I sound pessimistic, I myself got married. I'm delighted that I did. The book is a, you know, the book doesn't say you have to get married to have a good life, but it says, look, lots of people find great joy through their marriage and they really do. And here's how to do it. And so 
I've never been able to square this, that, that on the one hand, the decision is, is certifiable, that, that you're going to say, now that I'm 30, I know that this is the person I want to be with when I'm 80. We're going to have cancer diagnoses. We're going to have money troubles. We're going to have a toddler with a learning disability. Like, do we really think we know enough about how we function as a pair to know that we'll be able to deal with all those situations? The answer is no. And the book says that we don't need to live at the summit of Maslow's hierarchy. We don't need to expect all of these things from our partner at all times. And the book is specific about ways that we can actually ask less. And and the, the best of us, when we have these good marriages, what we do is we figure out the ways in which we are compatible and how that interfaces with our current circumstances. Do we have a young kid at home? Are we on vacation in Tahiti? These are different sorts of things. And we figure out where we're good and we double down on those things. Maybe we have a hot sex life and lots of passion and look, that's terrific. Maybe we just coordinate effectively and the sex, well, it isn't that great. And you figure out how to manage that. And then you get specific, not only about what you're gonna ask of the relationship, but what you're not going to ask of the relationship. Right. It can't be a process of just throwing more and more and more on this one relationship. There are other people in our lives. There are ways that we can be independent and, and figuring out how we can build a good, deep connection in precisely those ways that we're compatible and how we can mitigate or reduce the extent to which we get on each other's nerves or disappoint each other in ways that we're not compatible. That's going to be the solution. And that's going to require a sober approach to thinking about what we're going to be able, what we're going to be able to achieve together. Right. No, I, I think that makes so much sense. And just to close the loop on Gottman, I love that he threw Maslow's hierarchy <laughs> yeah. off the out of the train, right? Yeah. Because this, he's sort of like, there is such a thing as a good enough marriage. And yep. I thought this paragraph from your book was kind of emotion very emotionally resonant, if you don't mind if I read part of it. You write, in America, settling is a dirty word. We owe it to ourselves, the culture tells us, to look for excellence rather than adequacy, for good as hell rather than good enough. But even those of us seeking to develop a terrific marriage recognize that expecting 60 years of unmitigated bliss is a tall order. Even in successful marriages, there are difficult periods. Working through those periods can get the marriage back on track, but rarely overnight. And it can be a slog if the challenges are due to longer-term circumstances, like the economic stress triggered by an involuntary unemployment or the sleepless nights triggered by a newborn baby. Adding the disappointment of failing to live up to lofty expectations, our own and our spouses can exacerbate the stress, potentially placing the marriage at existential risk. And then I also, I, I think it's kind of funny how you pick on Elizabeth Gilbert throughout the book. I love her, but I, it's funny because you, well, you say essentially that she's sort of a victim, potentially, not that you're psychoanalyzing her, but of this not the romantic fallacy, but the people who believe in destiny, who believe in one love who believe that it's some sort of elevated tantric state, maybe, you know, that those people are invariably disappointed or maybe lack the temerity to slog it through because it is a slog. So I, I I didn't mean to pick on her. I agree that I, I think I might not have gotten the tenor exactly right. <laughs> it was right. good humor. It was well, it was loving. It wasn't I, mean. Yes, I have a lot of admiration <laughs> for her. I mean, I... I 
believe she's a very good avatar for our cultural mo- moment, right? She, she is mm-hmm. not willing to settle for mediocrity. She is in, she is very, very dedicated to personal growth and self-discovery and living authentically. That's what I'm talking about. Like that is what our culture is very serious about. In fact, she's an extreme example of that. And so she's a, she's a very good avatar for the, the thing that I'm talking about. Yes, I think it caused her, I mean, we know from her books that, that it caused her to leave her first husband, whom she deemed, uh, so far as we can tell, a reasonable man. Then at the end of Eat, Pray, Love, she falls for this other guy. She eventually marries him and then she leaves him too. But you remember, I also brought up Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl Strayed yeah. is also an avatar for this approach. She she's also, according to her own story, uh, has you know was married to a lovely man, but was feeling stagnant and stifled. Hers was in part due to the fact that she lost her mother young, and so she went on this voyage of self discovery and personal growth. And then she she found a marriage that helped to cultivate that sense of growth and discovery and authenticity. And my understanding is that she is um, still very happily married. So I think the two of them illustrate why these things can be so excellent. I think Elizabeth Gilbert really did have an excellent second marriage until it sort of fell apart. And also why it's fragile, why these things are at higher risk for falling apart, because Liz Gilbert is not going to settle for a marriage where there's some love here, but we're not really growing. She's going to demand more. And that, again, I think makes her a good paragon of this of this uh, type of approach to marriage that I've been talking about. Yeah. And, you know, at the end, you sort of poke at this idea that we as mar- that we might be, I don't know if we're in the midst of another evolution in marriage, but that it obviously it's a generational shift, but that people are sort of giving up on monogamous relationships. Or they don't really think that a monogamous relationship is the ideal, right? So 51% of people under 30, and these I don't know if these have changed since the book came out a few years ago, don't think monogamy is a good idea, whereas 70% of 65 plus. I can't imagine like how how we'll be able to sustain ourselves and not in non-monogamy, but like I I might be small-minded. Like it is so incomprehensible to me and terrifying to me. What is the, that, the idea of, of you personally being in a non-monogamous relationship or the idea that society might be open-minded to it? Oh no, that I could <laughs> okay. emotionally handle that yeah. or yeah, no, I would, yeah. I would not be down if yeah. my husband's listening. Not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not down. I don't care what other people do. Yeah. I'm just saying it's, it's, when I project how I feel personally, I can't. Those numbers are staggering. So, so a couple a couple comments on that. First, I, just just to make sure that the the data the finding is is sort of clear to your listeners, the, this is a study, and I found it fascinating, where they ask people on a, a Kinsey type scale for those familiar with that about sexual orientation, a scale from zero to six where they're reporting on their ideal relationship, not like what's what's actually feasible, you know, given human frailties. They said, what is your ideal relationship? And a score of zero says completely monogamous and a score of six says completely non-monogamous. And so what I've reported in the book is the percentage of people who listed something other than other than zero. Right. That is the percentage of people who said some amount of non-monogamy is ideal. And yeah, among millennials, and I don't think there are other samples yet for people younger, it's about 50-50 in terms of people who say that the ideal relationship is absolutely monogamous versus some amount of of non-monogamous. So I I believe that your instinct about yourself is 
really worth taking seriously. There is some addition. I mean, look, I, I don't think non-monogamy is for, for everybody. I, I think I'm sort of one of the few, my book is, I think, one of the few places where I think people, you know, somebody's talking very openly about the merits of non-monogamy without being something of a zealot for non-monogamy, which yeah. I am not. I am not at all a zealot for non-monogamy. It's probably not the right call for more than half of people. What I think is important about, you know, the, the chapter of the book where I, I talk about this is we have this sort of weird thing in, you know, American marriage right now where the assumption is, well, monogamy, of course, and then I'm going to start like with what I'm asking of the relationship. And I, I don't really think that's sensible or fair, right? So if we decide that that lifelong monogamy from 30 to 80 is, you know, that's romantic and sexual monogamy is going to be absolutely required unerringly, I think that is a very reasonable thing for people to be asking. It is not reasonable for them to treat it as if it is not a big ask. And so if, right. if that is something that's a big priority to you, and here, Elise, I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to your listeners that, that also have your inclination, which, again, I think is probably more than half, then it's like, okay, well, what is that going to take? Like, I think that probably has implications for how much we take care of our bodies, right? Like, if we're going to say you, partner, can never be with anybody else, but I'm going to completely let myself go and never bother to try to look good, that doesn't seem all that fair. It probably right. has implications for... Okay, well, if we're going to make this massive ask of the relationship, and like I said, I think probably the majority of the people are better off doing it, then, okay, I get that I'm making this massive ask, and I'm going to be okay with my marriage if it can't do this other thing that I might like, but isn't as important as that one. So it's really, mm -hmm. the, the thing that I find disconcerting is the idea that there's this assumption that th this this conversation should never happen, should we be monogamous or not. It's like, you try to bring you try to broach that with your partner and therefore like of course it's going to happen but we don't recognize that when we are making demands of our partner and our relationship that that those have costs that those have consequences right. and you can't ask for everything and and the context one last thing about this the context in which i talk about this is the broader context of if there are ways in which our relationship is coming up short and really what i mean is in the ways that your relationship and my relationship and everybody else's relationship is coming up short. Are there things that we can do to mitigate the amount of frustration or disappointment? And I talk about the possibility of getting a tennis partner and I talk about the possibility of reading your philosophy books. But one that I also talk about is the idea that there might be ways to be less demanding of this one relationship in the sexual domain. And the reason why I think that one is important is because I think there are strong relationships, otherwise strong relationships that die on these particular rocks. Now, some yeah. of those relationships that die on these rocks should die on these rocks because it is that important. Like somebody like you should be willing to die on these rocks because it is that crucial. But some of those relationships die on these rocks because of a narrow-mindedness that tells people you can't have an alternative way of doing this. And here I'm not talking about infidelity. I'm not talking about cheating. I'm talking about consensual non-monogamy, grown-ups having a conversation about how they're going to navigate their romantic and sexual life over time. Right. And you talk about masturbation and this idea that it doesn't always have to be partnered and you can, if you have, you know, varying sex drives. Yeah. That, that's, that there are solutions. I also think that the monogamy conversation is 
is interesting and certainly worth having because clearly I don't know with the rates, I don't know that we would ever know have the data because there's so much shame attached to it, potentially correctly or not. But a lot of people have been in non-monogamous relationships for the duration of their monogamous relationships, right. right? So it's not like this isn't happening or hasn't been happening forever since since That's the right. dawn of marriage. And now we're just sort of pushing it out in the open to have a conversation about it in a way that might preserve the family structure. The other, yeah. Can, can Sorry, I say, can I, yeah, let me say one thing about yeah. that. I, I guess I would ask your listeners, whether they themselves or anybody they know, have some significant level of difference between them and their significant other when it comes to, say, sex drive, so how frequently you'd like to have it, or what activities you like, right? Like, I guess we could call it kink or whatever else, like what sorts of sexual activities that you like. I mean, it would be absolutely miraculous if the person who happens to have like the eyes that you find beautiful and the intellect that you find inspiring and the sense of humor that is exactly compatible with yours wants precisely the amount the frequency of sexual contact that you want and exactly in the manner that you want to have it and and so obviously nobody's entitled to all of that like we shouldn't expect that we're going to get all of that so the question is where are we highly compatible. And let's like really double down on those things in the ways that we are not. And for many of us, it's going to have some type of, you know, sexual incompatibility, not necessarily a profound one, although for some people it will be profound. So how are we going to navigate that? Is the assumption that the person who wants to have it less sort of just determines when it happens and one person is chronically undersatisfied? Well, that's one solution. I'm not saying that's a bad one. Is it that the person who wants it more gets to have it whenever she wants and the other person has to accommodate that? Well, look, I, you know, whatever works for people, I'm not going to judge them as long as it's consenting adults doing what they're consenting to. Is it that you do all sorts of activities in the bedroom that you find unappealing or even disgusting because that's what your partner wants? I, or do you just have to go the rest of your life never having ha- never, never having the sorts of activities that, that you really want. All of those are fine solutions, but there are other solutions that, that happen to involve something beyond the dyad. And, and again, these are conversations that people don't have. And I think in some cases, that's to the detriment of the relationship. Right. And I think in our heads, you talk about this too. I loved this line. I thought it was hilarious. It's Ste- uh, Stephanie Kuntz, who, who you write, Stephanie Kuntz, who's a historian, reminds us that Leave it to Beaver was not a documentary, right? right? But that, and you talk about this period with, and Susan Kellogg, Stephen Mintz refer to it as the great exception, which was this, you know, 1950s ideal, you know, homemaker mom, breadmaker dad, however many children, but that in our minds, we, we, that's what we reference, right? That's right. Like we continually go back to that point, which really only lasted for what, a decade and cite it as an appropriate marriage or the perfect marriage or the ideal marriage. And then we don't really fact check it with the fact that that has never, that that only existed for a very small moment of time. And then we can argue about whether it was even ideal, right? Yeah. I mean, I found that 
that eye-opening as well. I mean, my background here is, you know, I'm a basic research psychologist. So I, you know, run, I bring couples into my, you know, living room shaped lab and I videotape them and I follow them over time. But the historical, sociological, economics perspectives on these things were new. And I too sort of had this understanding that traditional marriage was that thing in the 50s. And the way we talk about that is as if, well, it was like that in the 50s and just in perpetuity going backwards, it was like that. But the 50s were freaking weird in terms of the nature yeah. of family life. First of all, it was the only time in America there was like a few decades, maybe 45 to 75, where a fa- like regular people could actually make ends meet on the back of one salary. That's when the right. suburbs exploded. It just happens to be when television came in. And because it happens to be when television came in and we've been watching reruns of Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver, we've encoded that way of thinking about marriage as if as if it came down Uh, you know, with Moses from Mount Sinai. And it didn't. It was one historical eye blink in a massive sequence of historical eye blinks. And this is why I, I, even though I want the book to be helpful to people, and and like you said, the last third to half of the book is, is pretty practical in terms of how to have a better relationship. But I wanted everybody to know some of this background, primarily because once you understand how these things have changed, it is, I believe, empowering that, that we realize that there is a broad buffet of options available to us and that there are are many reasonable ways for reasonable adults to de- decide to live a, a good marriage together, a good family life together. And and the 50s, that was one. And look, if people want to have a, a, you know, a male breadwinner, female homemaker marriage today, then God bless. But how awesome is it that we live in an era where we get all of this choice? And I would just urge people to try to do as much introspection and conversation as they can to figure out how is it that we can connect in the best way, ideally in a way that keeps us all happy until death really does do us part. Exactly. And then to sort of figure out why other people's alternate way of approaching life why it's so triggering, right? Or so brings yeah. up so much in us so mm-hmm. that we can let that go, right? Because as mentioned, I'm I've I'm not in I don't want to be in a thruple. I think I've made that clear. <laughs> yeah. However, I don't care. I could give two shits if my neighbor wants to be in a thruple, right? But we have to get to this place of allowing other people to live their lives and figure out what works best for them and to let go of this idea that we're all the same or that our needs are the same or that we're in the same life stage or that our you know opportunities are the same it's just a myth the other thing that i thought was great and i know you you sort of don't get your you're like i'll leave i'm going to not you say you're you will make no effort to adjudicate the debate here but we also go back to one of those myths which is this idea that men hunt and women gather and homemake, right? This biological imperative, yeah. you talk about it. And I loved this. I thought it was so powerful that, you know, met this idea that men own assertiveness and women own nurturance mm-hmm. and that we've we've let that govern us in a yeah. way. And I think it's Sandra Bem, right? Who concept- mm-hmm. she, you write, the psychologist Sandra Bem conceptualizes assertiveness in terms of psychological masculinity, which is masculine and male are not the same, obviously, and nurturance in terms of psychological femininity. We often think of masculinity and femininity as occupying opposite ends of a single dimension, but they are better conceptualized as two separate dimensions, 
she talks about psychological androgyny, right? The mm -hmm. people who are most emotionally well-tuned for relationships manage to have, I don't know if it's 50-50 or some sort of balance, whether male or female, a balance of psychological assertiveness or masculinity and psychological nurturance or mm -hmm. femininity, mm -hmm. which I think is so interesting mm -hmm. and clarifying. And I think if there's one myth that we can distance ourselves from, it's that there's this biological urge that we each have to occupy two different spheres in life. Yes. I I mean, one of the things that I do in the, in the front end of the book is, is I talk about how people really dreamed of this breadwinner, homemaker, love-based marriage. I mean, it was like a, it, for like a, a century and a half, people thought, wouldn't it be amazing if this were possible? And what they they didn't get because they essentialized the differences between men and women is that, look, maybe there is a difference. Maybe, maybe there are sex differences such that women are on average a little more nurturing than men and men are on average a little more assertive than women. And maybe there's some biological basis for that. I, I don't even want to get into the debate. The, the debate, even among social scientists, tends to be contentious. But to pretend yeah. that women have only a desire for nurturance and not assertiveness and that men only have a desire for assertiveness and not nurturance is absurd. And so what we ended up doing with the 50s marriage, the, the love-based breadwinner homemaker approach, is we cleaved the human psyche in half. We basically mm -hmm. said, men, you get to be assertive, but we don't want to see you cry. Women, you get to be nurturant, but we don't want to see you like achieve much right, to be sort of professionally ambitious, for example, that that stifled us in a pretty profound way. And that is one of the things that I think is amazing about the era that we live in. I initially thought I was going to write a book that was kind of pessimistic about marriage. It was going to be a story about how we're asking more and more and more of these things, while simultaneously we're not really investing more time in the marriage. And, and therefore, we're kind of destroying our own marriages and marriage as an institution. And, and the story ended up being so much more interesting because, mm -hmm. because everything that I thought is true, we are in terms of the higher level Maslow stuff, the psychological stuff, we are asking way more than in the past. And it does mean that you can't really do it on the cheap, which means a lot of emotional investment, a lot of coordination, a lot of communication, much more so than when you're figuring out how to you know tend the flock and, and plant the corn. And, and so I, I mean, my initial instinct was right, that we're doing something pretty dangerous and we're making the average marriage worse, but we're also freeing people up to be a fuller, more authentic version of themselves. And for those of us who can make it work, and it's not like just 2%, right? It's a, it's, I think the minority, but it's a healthy minority thus far who figured out how to connect in this top of Maslow's hierarchy way that doesn't put deep rules on you know the nature of what women are and what women can do the nature of what men are and what men can do and because we have that freedom we have a lot more ways to fail but the successes are all the sweeter yeah no it's absolutely true and you know there's certainly a lot of studies to support when we think about the context because i think so many people go straight to like but what about the kids and you know the the family unit and I actually wanted to say that the, the front half of the, yes, the question that you asked was like, I don't give two shits. Like I'm tolerant. So so he, <laughs> here I, I'd like to, uh, you know, I myself lean left, <laughs> but I would like to try to channel what I think is a quite reasonable concern from the, that is more prevalent on the right side of the 
political continuum than on the left, which is that that it's not really about just each individual does his or her own thing and everybody ends up happy, that there are social and societal consequences and that family is a pretty important social institution for the nature of society in general. And I happen to think that conservatives make a very good point here. They, they you know, I don't necessarily agree entirely with their analysis, but I think this is a very valid concern. And it's certainly a valid concern about people who might consider consensual non-monogamy, right? Like there's a responsibility that we have to our children. I think if you make a decision to have children, you have a moral responsibility to provide an environment where um, they can, you know, grow up well and ideally flourish. For for me, the the crucial distinction there isn't really about monogamy versus non-monogamy. It's about stability versus instability. And the available evidence provides no reason for skepticism that that if, you know, if you were in a long-term throuble, that your kids would end up worse off. In fact, can you imagine having three loving adults in a household? Like there, there may well be upsides of that. It's really the, you know, there's a new, there's a new woman over every night. And I don't know. And the kids just have no sense of certainty about that, or they start attaching to someone and then she's gone. So, so with regard to not caring what, what other people do, I think it's fair enough for us to have opinions about what's good for society as well. And then to try to do trade-offs among what's good for the individual and what's good for the society and, and simultaneously to attend to both, both levels of analysis. Conservatives are yeah. good at reminding us that there are decisions that a bunch of individuals might make in isolation that are good for them that might yield a bad society. And, and we're, we're wise to remember that. No, and to be absolutely, just to con- completely agree with that, I would say actually, you know, in thinking about it, like I am in a throuple because our Vicky our kid's nanny, uh, she's yep. been living with us during yep. COVID, mm-hmm. and she is absolutely a third parent, <laughs> uh-huh. if not like the best parent, right. the one who's parenting all of us. And so, you know, we pay her to love our children, but they feel, I mean, she loves she loves our kids. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's possible to, to, to demand that sort of love mm-hmm. that she shows them. But yeah, I mean, we're sort of living proof. If you have two mm-hmm. working parents... Mm-hmm. We can't do it by ourselves. And um, this is the way that humans were always raised until very recently. Yeah. They were raised by communities. They were raised by broad extended families. So the other, just to sort of shift into some of the things that can help us and regardless what, what sort of marriage we might find ourselves in. I loved, first, I just wanted to sort of sidetrack to the stat because I love it. And it also makes the point, one of the points that you make, which is we're really, we're our version of history, particularly when we're in conflict, is sometimes delusional. And so one of your one sort of chunk of advice is to always assume the best in terms of your partner's intentions instead of just immediately going off the rails, which I think is very fair and valid. But I love this quote, which is, and again, it sort of points to our own delusion about our own lives. Most of us overestimate how much we work, and the overestimates are particularly large among people who claim to work the most. Americans who claim to work 35 to 50 hours per week tend to overestimate by about five hours per week on average, whereas those who claim to work 75 hours or more per week overestimate by about 25 hours mm-hmm. per week. Yep. I thought that was stunning and, mm-hmm. and hilarious, but I, I do think it speaks to that the I, the fact that when we're in relationship, and this is certainly something that my husband and I struggle with, I'm guessing it's universal, is you have your own view of yourself mm-hmm. 
and your world. And it's often pretty far afield from a more objective reality. So can you talk to us about like getting closer to the same page? If you ask people, like if I were to ask you and your husband, you know, what percentage of the housework do you do? What percentage of the parenting that you do? If you're like most couples, it would add up to more than 100%. And, oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's not that we're <laughs> evil. It's not that we, you know, always underappreciate what our partner does. It's like salient. It's vivid to us that we just took out the garbage, that we just did the dishes, that we just changed the diaper. And it's, you know, there's stuff that our partner's doing that we're not seeing or that we don't sort of recognize that that he or she views it as service or whatever or as, as sort of a contribution to family life. So I would... You know, I wish I could make a call for humility <laughs> that, you know, we are convinced when we're having a fight that it was our memory of what our partner said that is correct. And there's no way that it's what he said that is correct. And, you know, look, the research, it, it, you know, if you were to take my intro to psych class on and, and we were to cover memory Memory is enormously biased. We think of it like something you file away, and then when you try to remember something, you just call back that file. But that's not at all what it is. It's heavily distorted. And our subjective experiences, the, these things all tend to be pretty self-serving and biased. And if we remember that, a lot of the fights that we have start to go away. Because what we say instead of, that is not what happened, we say, whoa, like I... I understand that that if if that was how you experienced it or how you're remembering it, I see why you were frustrated with what I did. I thought it happened this way and I was frustrated too. And it's important to me that you understand why with my understanding I was frustrated, but it is not important to me that you declare that my narrative of what happened is objectively true. And those are very constructive discussions that don't make me don't make people feel defensive and yet teaches your partner the circumstances under which you get upset. And hopefully you guys can mm -hmm. listen and learn from each other in those sorts of conversations, keeping the temperature down and actually having an insightful, mutually understanding type of conversation. And it's a challenge. It takes practice. So the other things that are helpful sort of hacks, I think you call them love hacks, yeah. is using gratitude as a tool, mm -hmm. which is good for all of us all the time in every avenue and aspect of our lives. And then I loved this, and I know that at the time the book was published, I think the evidence was preliminary, but this idea of, and I, I'm terrible at this, so applying enthusiastic, so being enthusiastic and celebratory in, in response to your partner. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about like how that works? Yeah. So, so broadly speaking, the, you know, you've referenced sort of the, the last third or half of the book where it, where it gets a little bit more concrete about how to have a better relationship. Th that stuff is built on all of the sort of historical stuff I was building before, right? So if it is the case mm -hmm. that we're asking, we're looking to the top of Maslow's hierarchy, we're asking a lot more in terms of these sorts of psychological and, and emotional sorts of connections. And we find ourselves a little disappointed in some aspects of our marriage, which is true for pretty much everybody. Then we basically have three sets of options. Options. One set of option is to like go all in. And that's what people expect to hear from someone like me. So how should you have your date nights and, and how should you communicate better? And I dedicate a chapter to that. And then there's a chapter that's dedicated to how to ask less. Like what are the ways that we can be specific and concrete about asking less of our relationship? You're talking about this third option. So, so if you think of those first two options as a little bit of like supply and demand, it's like, what are you demanding of your marriage? And if you're going to demand a lot, well, then you better be investing a lot in the marriage 
date nights, communication, and so forth. But there's this third possibility other than like demanding less or, or supplying more, giving more supply, which is, can we use whatever available bandwidth we have right now more efficiently? And these approaches that I do call them love hacks, and they have two defining properties. One is that you can do them by yourself. You don't even need to coordinate with your partner. And the other is that they take on the order of minutes, right? These aren't really intensive things that you do. And they're inspired a little bit by Marcel Proust, who says that mystery is not about traveling to new places, but about looking with new eyes. What are the things, the things we can do to sort of look with new eyes at, at our partner and at our relationship? So you've talked a little bit about how we can interpret our partner's behavior. There's a lot of flexibility we have in terms of why was our partner late? Is it because he's a jerk or because he did the best that he could and just couldn't make it work? You're talking here about, about what in the research literature is called capitalization. So you come to your partner and express that you had this, this sort of success, this win at work. And, and she says to you, hey, that's cool, but can we talk a little bit about it after, after this thing is over or wait, hold on, I just want to finish this sentence or whatever. Or do you say, oh man, that one's cool. Come on over to the kitchen. Let's grab a glass of wine and talk about it. And it turns out, perhaps not surprisingly, it turns out that that people who are doing this, this more enthusiastic sort of listening, it doesn't even have to involve the glass of wine, that, that the partner feels way, way better. So I, I guess I would ask your listeners, how many of you are good at that? Like how many of us are good at detecting, yeah, it looks like my partner's actually kind of proud of this, and then making it big, really savoring the moment in a way that that very few of us do in, in any sort of regular way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm terrible at that. I'm terrible and, at that I'm too. terrible about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't make big deals out of the big deals. Yeah. And but even the little deals, kind of, like we should be making, especially yeah. for our partner. I mean, I'm especially bad about it for myself. Like if I have an achievement, I just forget and then go back to email, but I'm trying to get better. And I have gotten better <laughs> about if I see that she's had a big deal or somebody that I love has stopping what I'm doing, signifying that was a thing. And I would much rather overestimate. I'd much rather pour the wine when it wasn't a pour the wine moment than fail to pour the wine when it was a pour the wine moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it certainly makes life more fun. And then you talk about you talk about sort of affectionate touching, just simple, mm-hmm. you know, holding hands, putting your arm around someone, just it's funny, you know, the whatever the five languages of love are. Yeah. I haven't read that book, mm-hmm. but like understanding like for my husband, touch is very important mm-hmm. and it never occurred to me until I was like, Oh, right. Like you touch me because you want me to like put my hand on your arm mm-hmm. and like it calms him. Mm-hmm. But is that something that's sort of universally, it seems like it's probably universally good. No, I don't think it is. And and this is, again, I mean, I, so I sort of try to claim that, you know, the last third to a half of my book is self-help. And I really think it is. But it, it's not self-help that exists at that level. So it doesn't say these are the secrets and, you know, reach out to touch him this many times a day or something like that. And And the reason why is because... We're all different. And so I think there are general trends. So if you want to, if you want to say like on average, do people feel closer when, when their partner reach out, reaches out and touches them? What I think is so fun about that study that I review, there's a series of studies, but one of the studies that I think is so fun is the positive effect of having your partner reach out and touch you is there even if you know that your partner reached out and touched you because the experimenter told them to. 
Like, so that's one right. of the things that I find fascinating. But really, it, in the, you know, the social sciences, we're talking on average. We're saying relative to the people in this condition, they felt more comfortable. They felt closer to their partner if they had been touched. But I also talk in the book about how I have some like avoidant emotionally avoidant tendencies. And for most people, if they hurt themselves or, or feel ashamed about something that happened, what you want to do is like soothe them and give them a hug. And for me, it's like, go away. Give me a few minutes to process this. Like if I stub my toe, I don't want anybody there until it stops hurting. And so the rule right. that like, well, the way to take care of people is when they're feeling physical or emotional pain, go to them and nurture them and rub their back wouldn't apply to me. I'm still happy to say that on average, it's good advice, but the book is really serious about the importance of communicating with your partner and figuring out a cookie cutter solutions aren't going to work for us. They might have some good general advice, but we're going to learn about each other over time and we're going to make a real effort to do that. And consequently, we're going to be able to have a much deeper connection than if I were just using cookie cutter sorts of solutions like when injured, then rub back. At the end, you talk about, I don't think it had been studied yet, and I'm wondering if it has been studied. Probably not, because I know your book came out pretty recently, yeah. but that idea of writing for 10 minutes once a month about your goals and aspirations and spending five minutes on your own and then spending five thinking about facilitating your spouse's goals. And those are, are goals that related to authentic self, right? Not just sort of like, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. walk every day. Mm -hmm. But has that been studied? No. Or, or can you talk about why you think it would be so powerful? Yeah. So I, I was, you know, it's funny. I sort of forgot to do that study. I got to do that. So, so God, Eli, <laughs> well, I'm here to remind I, you. It's amateur hour <laughs> over here. I want people to be more sensitive to what they are asking of their partner, because I think what has actually happened is, and again, only really in our cultural moment, is we just threw more and more and more on this one relationship, the spouse. And that's not necessarily bad, but there is something to be said for being aware of all the things that we're asking and then trying to figure out, like, is this working? Could we make ourselves happier by asking less in some ways? And frankly, maybe asking more in other ways. And so I, I encourage people in the book to give some thought to what are things that they, what are important things that they want from their life that include, you know, being loved, giving love, all sorts of other stuff. And which of those things are really essential to meet through the marriage like, for example, like running a household where, you know, people feel like visiting us, right, is something that you really can't do through your best friend because your best friend doesn't live with you. But then what are the goals that you could meet maybe through some other significant relationship, right? You know, a best friend, a sibling. And then what are the goals that you really could meet on your own? And then being strategic about how just about the amount of demand that we're placing on this one relationship and, and making sure that the demands that we're placing on this relationship are really in light of the amount of emotional connection that we feel, the time and bandwidth we have for each other these days, I would urge almost everybody who's got a newborn or young children at home, step back a little bit, descend a little bit from the summit for a while, because it's going to be hard to have sex as frequently as you did before, to have the deep conversations you used to have, to go to the matinee and then discuss philosophy over dinner. These are things that are going to be hard to do for a while. And so you'll be disappointed if you don't calibrate your expectations. So the, the task of what types of goals we're bringing and how we might fulfill them helps us, I think, calibrate our expectations of the marriage to what the marriage can realistically provide.
And then in the context, I know it's just it's interesting to think about that, particularly in the context of COVID. And some people are sort of able to get out and mingle more. And clearly we're seeing our friends and whatnot on Zoom, which is certainly not the same. But I would imagine it's putting it's maybe it's a good time to reevaluate what you're putting on your partner just because, think, you know, right now my husband's on average, I I mean, on average, I think it is, you know, it's for some <laughs> of us, it's a total windfall for a lot of us, right? Like who, who I mean, if you told some people, you know, on January 1st that you were going to have an extra 25 hours a week together with your spouse, you, you might've been thrilled. And so, so some of us are really able to use that effectively. I think it's going better for people who don't have either very young kids or school age kids at home, but fair, yeah, fair. yeah but, but it's, it's on average. <laughs> average, this is a big stressor for people, even people who don't get the disease. And on average, stress tends to be corrosive for relationships. Again, some people deal really well with stress. Sometimes stress brings us close together. We're just talking on average. So yes, COVID is a time where I think on average, people will be served well by stepping off the expectations for a little bit, for easing up on those expectations a little bit, or at least calibrating them better to what the new reality is. Surely this is a different reality than the one we thought we were launching into when we made the decision to marry this person. How is it that we can play to our strengths under these circumstances and mitigate our weaknesses given the new reality? Well, thank you for your time sure. and good luck. Good luck with your with your marriage. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good luck with yours. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Eli Finkel. For more from Eli, pick up a copy of his incredible book, The All or Nothing Marriage. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.